Well, good morning, everybody. Kate Mila Falcha, Gadi, Chuck Solis, Ambalia, Akhlia, Jamie, Anandum. It is so good to see you. And uh, what a great Sunday it is to be at church because it's sunny, everybody. I know sometimes we think, why do the Irish have this obsession with the weather? Because, listen, if you don't learn to enjoy the five days a year when the sun actually shines in this place, you will become a manic depressant. So we thank God for many things today, but we thank God especially for the weather. And I will be jumping into our subject matter in a few moments that talks about mental health. But before I do, as the series video said, we're starting a brand new collection of talks next Sunday called Mission Matters. And the reason why we're talking about mission is because mission matters. It's a Ron Seal job, you know, it does what it says on the label kind of thing. And, uh, and really what we're going to explore over the next couple of weeks is how we as a church aren't called to be a service. It's very quiet in this church. We're called to be a people on mission. We don't go to a lighthouse. We're called to be a lighthouse. Wherever God has planted us as his people, in school, in work, in sport, in culture, online, or in life, God has called us to be a representation, an extension of his love and grace everywhere that we live. And so next Sunday, we're going to talk about how we as a church want to be intentional in mission, not just locally, not just nationally, but indeed internationally. And next week in the house, we have a very special organization that we partner with called Compassion. And Compassion are all about rescuing children globally from poverty. Because we can go and we can pray for people and we can help people for a while. But if we want to see lasting transformation in the lives of young people in towns, villages, and cities, then we need to give people the tools to get out of poverty and build a better future for themselves. Again, it's very quiet in this church right now. So we're super excited that we don't just talk about things or come to church on Sunday, but that we're actually making a difference around the world. And that starts next week, part one, Mission Matters, do not miss it. Today, however, I want to kind of uh, pull the handbrake, do a quick right angle turn, because they're talking about something very, very different. Today is a standalone Sunday, and what that means is I want to bring you a one-off message that as I, was, as I was praying and thinking about what God would have me share, I really felt God put the word anxiety on my heart. Now, not because I'm anxious to talk to you, although no matter how many times you preach, you always have a little bit of like, oh my gosh, like, will they, will they like me kind of thing. Um, but actually about how God wants to speak into our world right now and bring us a word that will bring peace and hope in the face of anxiety and uncertainty. So I've called the message, Driving Me Mental. Now, I don't know if you were born here or grew up here or lived here any kind of time, but when, we, when, we, when I actually want to say, um, you're really frustrating me, you're re really irritating me, you're nagging me beyond my ability to cope, what we say here is we say, you're driving me. Come on, somebody, you're driving me. And the truth is, when you came to this place today and when you leave this place today, if you drive a vehicle, what you won't do is reverse out of your spot in Blanchetown Car Park, looking in your rearview mirror, and, to, and continue to drive that way all the way home, right? Because that's dangerous and that's stupid. You know, we're stupid, we're, we're smart enough not to drive that way, but we're not smart enough to not live that way. Many of us are constantly living and driving our lives looking through the rear view uh, mirror. So what I want to talk to you today about is this whole idea of mental health. That uh, we're not just a church that, you know, um, is em emotional and talks about all these emotive things, but also where, uh, this slide is not right here, uh, it, we're also a church that talks about mental health because this is one of the biggest crises facing the Western world right now is that we, in a, in a sense, I know there's many people in this room watching online who have physical and practical needs, but all of us, you know, in many ways, comparatively speaking, are far more richer and far more better off than the majority of people in the world. Like, if you're poor in Ireland, you're rich compared to most of the world. And so even though we have daily struggles, and, and I'm not um, putting them down, not belitt belittling them, we're going to talk about those. The truth is, we, we have most of our physical, financial needs met 
and still, despite having more money than maybe our grandparents had, or more comfort, or more opportunity, or more education, or more of whatever, technology, sport, toys, sweets, despite having more, we've never been more challenged as humanity when it comes to the area of mental health. In fact, let me give you some research on this. Some research that was done post-COVID-19 by Qualtrics, mentioned by Forbes, said this, that 67% of people have higher stress levels coming out of COVID before going into COVID. 57% said their anxiety levels were higher post-COVID than, than before COVID. 54% said they were emotionally exhausted. This is very sad. 53, over half the population said they feel sadness day to day. 50% uh, feel more irritable. We see that in traffic on the street. And 42% said mental, their mental health in general has declined. Now, you take this research and you marry it with uh, what Google says is some of their most, most searched topics in their search engine. No surprise, number one, the first thing that people search the most in, in Google is anxiety, followed by fear, followed by worry, followed by stress, followed by grief followed by loneliness. And of course, all these things are driven by the idea that people are afraid. There's an uncertainty. There's a lack of confidence. About what? About the future. We're, we're, we're uncertain. We're not, we're, not, we're not confident in what's going to happen next, economically, personally, relationally, in all these different areas. And that uncertainty, that fear of what may or may not happen next makes us feel pressure. Now, in Ireland, we have a saying. We say pressure's for... Come on, somebody. Pressure's for? Pressure's for tires, everybody. Pressure goes in tires, and pressure's a positive thing that makes our vehicle move. But joking aside, when you are legitimately under pressure, when you feel mentally, emotionally, even spiritually, relationally, financially under pressure, it's not fun. And so the biggest pressure points in our culture right now, people are asking questions like, what's the right career choice? What's the right college choice, and maybe you and your parents have a disagreement on what that is, right? Which makes it more pressure. Uh, what's the right relationship choice? Because even though we want to, you know, uh, go out and have a good time and live life, at the same time, in the back of our mind, we're always wondering, who will be my spouse? Who will be the one I spend the rest of my life with? How far am I willing to go? How much am I willing to give up to make that relationship choice the best choice? What's the right investment choice? And of course, there's a whole bunch of questions around what, what's, when's the right time to launch that business, to quit that job, to talk to that person, to pop the question, to seal the date, to have a baby, to sell the house, to move company? There's so many questions around timing that, that this, the last question in of itself has enough anxiety attached to it that can drive us mad. Now, what's interesting is in the face of all this tension, and maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and if you're not a Christian and you're here, we're so glad you're here, you're very welcome. But maybe you're curious as to, well, well, well what do we as Christ followers, those who have a faith, what do we do in the face of all this? Well, the first thing I want to say is this, anxiety and worry and stress aren't Christian or non-Christian problems, they're just human problems. Well, you're, whether you're a Christ follower and have faith or not, we all experience the same emotions in life. What's different for those who have faith is that we believe that by, by being in proximity and relationship with God, that there is hope and that there is help available from heaven, not just in a kind of uh, an intangible, you know, superfluous sense, but in a real practical way. And so most of you know, perhaps the most, actually it is, uh, as per research, the most quoted, well-known piece of scripture is Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's most quoted, most referenced movies, songs, you know, you know it culturally. If you ask most people, name one line from the Bible, they're going to say, the Lord is my shepherd. So what does it mean to have God as your shepherd in the face of such pressure? Well, there's three key things. Number one, when we have God as our shepherd, what does a good shepherd do? Well, he's our provider. So when it comes to need, when it comes to, 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 to uh, you know, income, when it comes to paying bills, when it comes to having enough, we trust that God is our provider. What else does a good shepherd do? He is our protector, that a good shepherd protects his flock. A good shepherd is always looking out for the interests of those that are under his care. And at number three, he isn't some far off distant relationship shepherd 
like a Zoom shepherd, like a FaceTime you once a month shepherd. He is a present help in time of need shepherd. He is the one that sticks closer even than a brother. And so in the face of all this pressure, we have this incredible opportunity before us in a relationship with God where we can, we can experience provision, protection, and present help. But what's interesting, maybe you're feeling right now, is despite knowing this as a Christ follower, despite being able to quote this as a Christ follower, despite praying this as a Christ follower, sometimes the feelings of anxiety are still there. Now, um, I want to contrast two stories. I'll tell you one story now and one story at the end of two women who both experienced a burglary. The first story is a woman who, growing up, her phobia, you know, we all have these phobias, I don't know what your phobia is. I, I have a phobia of being eaten alive by a shark, just so you know. Um, and I've always said this, and you can put me on record. If I do happen to be eaten alive by a shark, which would be an amazing thing because I don't get in the water. So that shark have to run on the street and catch me. But if, if one day I were to be eaten by a shark, you would always know which shark had taken me. Because there'd be a big piece of his nose missing. Because he's gnawing on me, I'd be gnawing on him. Like, let me tell you something, I'm Irish. I'm taking a bit of you with me, you know what I'm saying? She'll always be able to know which shark took me. But the story is this woman had a phobia, and her phobia was of one day being, her house being burgled. So she gets married, <laughs> does life, and, you know, of course, as we often do when we get married, you don't realize all the baggage that comes with people. So her husband's unaware of this phobia. And for years and years and years, it caused so much strain, so much stress, because middle night, she's waking up, she's prodding him, go check, there's a noise, you know, stress. She doesn't sleep well, which leads to more compound stress. And, you know, but, but after 10, 15, 20 years of marriage, this woman is, is exhausted, this man is exhausted from his, his, his wife, what seems to be a rational phobia. That is, of course, the one night he hears a noise in the kitchen, goes downstairs, true story, and there standing before him is a real-life burglar, everybody. Now, most of us in that moment, if we saw a burglar in our kitchen, we'd be freaked out, like, what the heck is going on? Like, we wouldn't know, I mean, it'd be fight or flight, it'd be heightened senses, adrenaline. We, you know, we, who knows how we react in that situation? But what happened in this man's story is that the burglar notices him being noticed and then is shocked by the man's complete calmness. The burglar's thinking, like, you're supposed to be afraid, but the guy's completely calm. And so the burglar's like, what are you doing? And he's like, listen, I don't want to inconvenience you, Mr. Burger, but could you do me a huge favor? Would you come with me and meet my wife so she can see, even though you're burglar in the house, you're not a bad guy, so we can get over this phobia once and for all. That's a true story. I don't recommend it, but it's a true story. Now, what's interesting is, is a thief can rob you once, but anxiety can rob you for a lifetime. She spent her whole life worrying about something that may or may not have happened. So I want to talk to us today and give us something that will help us practically to defeat the thief that robs us of our peace, hope, and joy. So the question is, how do we get in control of our anxiety? And we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, two verses, verse 6 and 7. So you have the Bible app, a U version. Uh, the QR code is going to be here on the screen so you can... Um, open up and all today's notes are there for you plus some additional research notes if you want them and we're going to look at two verses in the bible app philippians chapter 4 verse 6 and 7 now some context the book of philippians was actually a letter that the apostle paul wrote while he was in rome to a local church like ours in a city called philippi and he's writing to encourage the church uh, in their following god and their in their being in community in them being a church. And in chapter 4, he begins to address the area of anxiety. Now, you're thinking, well, of course, some religious leader sitting in some office pontificating from Rome could write a letter to a church. But understand, what makes these words so powerful is that at the time the Apostle Paul was writing these words to the people at the church in Philippi, he himself was in prison. And the reason why he was in prison, he didn't rob someone, he wasn't a, a tax evader, he didn't beat someone up or kill someone. He was in prison because at that time, tragically, just for being a Christian, just for not denying your faith, you could be imprisoned. I wonder how many Christians would be in this Christian church today if the price of your Christianity meant you would land up in jail. There's a thought. I think it'd be a little bit less than what we see in front of us. What's interesting is, the reason why, part of the reason why he's writing the letter is because in the first century, there was no social system. If you were thrown in prison and you had no friends or family to bring you food, 
you would starve to death. That was an easy way of dealing with bad guys. And in fact, you know, nowadays when you, when you get charged and you go to prison, you automatically get a court case, right? So you're in prison for a while until you're judged, and then you're given a sentence. Well, in most of human history, when you were thrown in jail, there was no guarantee you'd ever be judged. There was no court case. You were left in jail as, as long as no one remembered you. And if the king, leader, ruler, whoever happened to remember you, maybe, maybe you'd be given the chance to defend yourself. So Paul is in prison in Rome. He's writing to the church in Philippi, thanking them for not forgetting about him. Because literally they were not just praying for him, but they were sending him food and supplies and keeping him alive. And Paul tells the church that he recognized that he's in a very crucial moment where he knows, because <clears throat> God is speaking to him, that he's about to lose his life for the gospel. The very book that we open, the very words that we read were brought to us through the death and sacrifice of thousands of Christians that have gone before us. And so Paul has this choice before him to be obedient to God despite the current culture of his day and proclaim the good news even though it costs him his life or to compromise and change his way. So he writes to the Philippians on the subject of anxiety as a man who's facing death itself. And here's what he says in verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Now again, if you're uh, not a church person and you're not from a church background, or maybe you are but you don't follow Jesus yourself, um, when it comes to church and when it comes to uh, God's Word, this is often how we think about it. Like, okay, so I have this issue, in this case it's anxiety, and I don't know what to do with it. And when we say, let's turn to God's Word, and the first thing that we're confronted with is an imperative. What's an imperative? It's a command. Paul isn't suggesting. Paul isn't, you know, uh, hey, by the way, guys, maybe you should consider. Paul isn't adding an option. Paul is saying, hey, do not be anxious about anything. And the truth is, one of the pushbacks that we often give when we're not Christ followers, if we're skeptical or looking in, is that it's like, yeah, of course, all the Bible is full of is useless commandments that don't help me at all in real life. I want you to understand, though, before you switch off and go to sleep, that's only the first half of the sentence. There's a reason for why Paul is saying this, and if you stay with me, hopefully, I can show it to you, and hopefully it will be helpful to your life, too. But ultimately, the re backtrack, the reason why he's saying it in an imperative uh, tense or tone is because if you're here and you're a Jesus follower, you're a person of faith, you trust God, you follow God, you're in the Word, you're soaping, you're in a group, you're giving, doing all these things, well then ultimately it doesn't make sense for a Christ follower to be anxious. Now I'm not saying it doesn't happen, of course it does, we all have anxiety, but it doesn't make sense. Why? Well because if God is who He says He is, then our anxiety not only makes us feel ashamed because we think we should have more faith, but our anxiety also makes God look weak. Because if we really believe in God and God is who He really says He is, then it doesn't make sense for a Christ follower to be anxious. Why should we not be anxious? Well, number one, we should not be anxious because of who God is. I mean, who is God? He's the creator of the world. He, he, he's our Father in heaven. He is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, and he is omniscient. Those three words, omni means all potent, all powerful. Present, all present. Omniscient, science, omniscient, the word science comes out, which means all-knowing. God is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. Because we have a Father in heaven that knows us and loves us and is for us, we don't have to be anxious, but also because of what God has done. Because if you're here and you have any testimony or you have any story of God's grace in your life, as you, as you think about your past, as you think about the track record of God, as you think back to God's faithfulness, more than likely all the pain and grief in your life was not caused by God not showing up. It was caused by you and I, us, making poor choices, unwise choices, selfish choices that we thought were diversions but ended up becoming directions and led us to the destination we are today. But we know as we think back that any time we trusted God, waited for God, put our confidence in God, God was faithful. So we don't need to be anxious because God is what God has done, but also because of what anxiety does to us. I don't know if you noticed, but the, 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 the um, effects of anxiety are absolutely destructive in our lives. I was reading the other day a journal by 
the Harvard Medical Review that said that if, if you struggle, like, I mean, always have moments of anxiety, but if you are constantly, consistently walking, carrying a level of anxiety in your life, then you are twice as much more likely to develop a serious illness in your life. Which, by the way, if you're anxious, that makes you more anxious. It's like my anxiety is making me sick. Now I'm even more anxious. And part of the problem of our culture is, is that we're fed these facts, these very helpful facts, but no one's offering us a solution as to how we can get in control of our anxiety. Now the word anxious, and I guess go back to Paul's word, do not be anxious. The word he used in the Greek language, and of course the New Testament was written in Greek, that's why it's the Greek language, is the word, there it is, computers. Uh, it's a very powerful Greek word, uh, <laughs> and settings. Actually, the, the word is actually merimnao, and the word merimnao is two Greek words compounded together, merimnao. And the word merimnao in the Greek language actually means care, okay, which is really interesting because let me, let me give you a perspective you've never thought about. The word anxiety in the Greek language literally means care. Why? Because we don't worry about things we don't care for. So another way of flipping anxiety's head and seeing it in a different light is that anxiety is nothing more than caring. You're, o- you're not over-anxious, you're over-caring. You're, o- you're over-concerned. Because you care about your kids, you worry. Because you care about paying your bills, you worry. Because you care about the world, you worry. Like our anxiety comes from this idea that we care. Now, the word care, Mernau, is two words. The first word is the word merizzo. It's a verb, and it means to tear. It's literally the verb to tear, merizzo. And the second word is the word nous, which means mind. Merimno is like torn mind. And what the compound word in Greek shows us is that when we live with anxiety in our lives, it's like having our mind torn apart. Uh, anyone ever see the movie Braveheart? Come on, William Wallace and the, the lovely Irish guy. It's my island. Anyway, and so, so in that, at the end, when he's captured, he's been tortured, there was a, there was a form of medieval torture uh, called, called quartering. And part, I won't go through the whole thing because it's quite graphic. But the first step of quartering was they would hang someone but not allow them to die. Lovely. And then once you were hung to the point of death but not dead, they would put you on a bench, tie your arms to ropes, legs to ropes, uh, which are connected to horses. And then two horses or mechanical machine would literally try rip your body apart. And I won't tell you what the third step is because it's graphic. You can Google it later on by yourself. Uh, so, but the idea is that that feeling of being torn apart is not a pleasant feeling. And if, if that's what people did to physically torture other people, then what Paul is saying is anxiety is like a mental torture. We're being, we're being mentally quartered, we're, we're being mentally torn apart because we care and we don't have confidence for the future, we end up falling into this trap of living in this constant tension which drives us mental. And if we don't get in check of that, here we go, if we don't get in check of that, eventually we will lose our mind. It's kind of like a rocking chair. Anyone ever um, been in a rocking chair? And uh, I remember growing up my, going to my granny's house and they had this rocking chair and, and it was great fun. But you know, it takes a lot of energy to rock yourself in a rocking chair. Maybe your culture is more like a hammock culture. So you had a hammock, we had rocking chairs, right? So it takes a lot of effort to keep that thing rocking. But how many of you know, no matter how much swaying you do in a hammock, or how much rocking you do in a rocking chair, you're not going anywhere. You're expending all that energy, all that effort, but you're not progressing. Allowing yourself to be controlled by anxiety, allowing your genuine cares of life to be torn apart by the fear of the future is like giving your best energy, your best dreams, your best money, and your best time to a rocking chair. A lot of energy, but you're not getting anywhere. Now, so, so okay, so thank you for that. That's helpful. Uh, we can close the sermon now and pray and go home. I mean, where's the hope? Where is the help? Like, what can we do to get out of this rocking chair? Well, the verse continues in verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but, turn your neighbor and say, but, but in every situation. Now, this is really important. So he's going to give us an answer. So, we should, so, the, so the, the imperative is, don't be anxious ever. Wow, what a command. Uh, but, now what is this but? Well, this but, in essence, isn't just a, 
and by the way, or let me insert something, this book is actually a, a pivot. It's a contrast. Like, rather than being in the rocking chair, pivot, turn, do something different so you can overcome the power of anxiety. Pivot in contrast from what we shouldn't do to what we should do. So we shouldn't be anxious. So what's the alternative? What should we do? Well, but in every situation, he says, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, <coughs> present your request to God. Now, again, I get it. This is the moment where all those people who are not Christ followers go, oh, come on, Jamie, please don't treat me like a fool. Don't tell me the solution to all my anxiety is just saying a prayer, okay? Hey, hey, listen, don't give up just yet. I'm not saying saying a prayer is the solution. When the Apostle Paul, from prison, about to die, tells his church, hey, I have anxiety because I'm about to lose my life. And you guys have anxiety, but you shouldn't be anxious. Here's why. Because if you understand what prayer is and how prayer works, go back please, then you will, then you will have what it takes to be able to overcome the power of anxiety. This thing's all over the place. There we go. Thank you. Then you ha you'll have what it takes to be able to overcome anxiety in your life. What's the next slide in this one, please? There we go. Now go back. Thank you very much. If the problem is anxiety, what Paul is saying in essence, then prayer with thanksgiving is the solution. If the problem is anxiety, if you're here today and you're struggling with worry, with fear for the future, uncertainty, if you can't get asleep at night, if you're having to medicate yourself to function in real life, if, if even though outwardly you're confident and have the crack and all life is good, but when you're alone, in fact, you don't like being alone because when you're alone, your anxious thoughts consume you. Here's what God's word says. The solution to anxiety isn't tablets, isn't self-help, isn't some material thing. It's the power of prayer. With, with okay, so what does that mean then? Because I'm not going to just say, hey, pray a prayer, say a Hail Mary, literally or metaphorically speaking. So what is prayer? Well, when you look at the word prayer, in the next slide, in the Greek language, so number one, uh, when Paul says prayer, he's not just saying like say this written thing, wrote, or this memorized thing. It isn't like a religious prayer. The word is actually the word emotive supplication. One of the problems that we have in the English language is that we don't have a lot of words for things. So prayer in the Bible, and God's word has many different words to describe prayer. In English, all we have is prayer. It's kind of like, I love chocolate and I love my wife. It's like, well, who, is that the same kind of love? Is it like love chocolate and your wife? Chocolate your wife? Wife chocolate? I don't know. That's you decide. The point is, our language is very limited in its range, okay? Again, in scripture, there's different words for love. So when you use a certain word, you know, oh, you kind of mean you love chocolate in a, in, a, in a nutritious sense, but you love your wife in an eternal romantic sense. Now I get it. But in English, we're limited. So when we look at the word prayer, as Paul, as Paul used, what he's talking about is this idea of emotive, so emotional motivation coming from what's driving us, supplication. To, to, to supplicant is to basically put a request in, to, to bring before, to plead, to ask, to make known. What Paul is saying is, is that when, when we come before God, we need to think about what is driving our anxiety. What is the motivation? What is the feeling deep in our soul that drives our fear for the future? For example, you're worried about money. What's the worry? You won't have enough. Where did that come from? Perhaps your childhood. Perhaps you grew up in a home where every day was a struggle for the most basic needs. Perhaps you saw your parents day in, day out, work themselves to the bone to be able to provide just a little bit. So you're constantly carrying this anxiety of what happens if I don't have enough? Maybe the answer is God's your provider. Maybe it's the idea, hey, if I don't get this place, if I don't achieve this position, if I don't, if I don't accomplish this, this task, if I'm not successful, if I'm not recognized, if I'm not, then I'll feel vulnerable because people will know who I am. And I'm a failure and I'm a disgrace and I'm full of shame and doubt and I hate myself. And so I do everything I can to make people see me in this way because I'm afraid to see me for who I am, really am, they'll reject me. Maybe God's saying to them, I'm your protector. I love you just the way you are. 
Or maybe it's just losing control. You just, you just don't like when life slips out of your control because you feel like it's a downward spiral and you lose your mind. That comes from, again, this idea that in the past, when you couldn't control things, you got hurt. So you're always trying to control it because you feel like the, the motive, the belief is, if I don't control things, I will get hurt and I have no one to help me. Maybe God is your present help in time. And when you are least in control, perhaps that's when he's most in control. See, what Paul is saying is that we shouldn't just bring our wants, our desires to God alone, but we should bring our feelings to God. Our feelings. Now, maybe you've never thought of prayer this way. Because oftentimes think of prayer as like either our Father art in heaven, have an Amen. Most of us could get halfway, don't even know how it goes. Amen. Or maybe you grew up in a different kind of church background where it's like, Lord, I need this, and I believe for this, and I want this. And because you're good, you're going to do this. And if you don't do this, you suck, and you're not real. And so, God, come on, do this. I'm a good person. God, if you do this for me, I will do that for you. And the whole thing's transactional. And God, Paul is saying, guys, prayer is so much more than saying religious words or giving God your shopping list. Prayer is the most intimate, most powerful, most vulnerable, most safe, most, most protecting relationship you can be in. And what prayer does that nothing else can do is we bring our feelings, our motives, our core fears before God. Not only does He care, but He offers us something. He offers us a solution in the face of those things that drive anxiety. Let your requests be known, Paul says. Now here's what's interesting. Do you know what you want? Because we think we know what we want, but do you really know what you want? Why do you want that job? Why do you need that money? Why do you have to get that promotion? We think we know what we want. Here's the truth. God knows what you want. He sees the motives of your soul. He knows exactly what you need. But do you know what you need? Do you know what you want? Because sometimes the things that we want aren't good for us. It's like if my kid came home and said, listen, Dad, I'm nine years old right now. I, wanna, I got 10 euro pocket money. I'm going to go to the shop and spend it all on sugar. Give me the keys to the car. He wants it. <clears throat> and maybe he thinks he deserves it. But how many you know a good father doesn't give his nine-year-old the keys to the car? Why? Because even though he asks, even though he wants, even though he says things like, if you were a real father, and if you were a good father, and if you really loved me for who I am, you would give me what I want right now. And I'm like, bro, you're going to end up killing some people and killing yourself. And I don't know if you know this, but I love you enough to say no. Now, what you want may not be a bad thing. It's about timing. It's not a not, it's not, a not ever. It's not now. A good father will one day train up his son or daughter to drive that car to empower them to achieve their dreams. So it's about timing. The point is, Paul says we should bring our feelings, the bare, the bare motives, what drives before God, and let our requests be known. But my challenge to you is, do you even know what you want? Because maybe behind the facade of God, give me the money to buy the clothes, is God, I, I want to be part of a community where people will love me for who I am, as I am. Oh, God, give me this promotion because I want the whole world to see how great I am. I want to prove to my parents and my friends and my brother and my sister that I've achieved something. Maybe the core motive is, God, help me to be secure in who you've made me to be and know that my place in the world isn't dependent on what other people think of me, but what your word says about me. And so on, and so on, and so on. Do you know what you want? That's the power of prayer. Now, what's interesting is Paul when he says we should bring prayer, he, he kind of connects it with thanksgiving. This is really, really powerful. Why? Because thanksgiving isn't like an afterthought. It's actually, the pow it's actually, it's actually a, a, a power that helps us defeat anxiety. Why? Because adoration, which is what thanksgiving is, adoration and anxiety cannot exist in the same heart. Listen to me. If I'm worried about something, like I say, I'm worried about... Um, this job interview is coming up. By the way, I don't have a job interview. I'm staying right here. Um, 
So you're thinking, oh, dang. No, no, no. I'm saying. So let's just say you're at a job interview coming up, and you're, you're anxious, like, oh, my gosh, like, I got to go to the job interview. What am I going to say? How do I going to think? Listen, when you begin to worship, when you begin to acknowledge God for who he is, when you going to think that, when you begin to think that and ponder that he created the entire world, that he literally knit you together, like, think how about, think about how incredible the human body is. And think about the mastermind behind the creation of the most sophisticated piece of tech in all the world, in all of history, is your Father in heaven. God, my job interview. <laughs> the whole world, my job interview. You made the human brain. You create the eyeball. You give us the ability to hear. Our soul and our emotions, God. Okay, <laughs> my job interview doesn't seem like such a big deal when I focus on who God is. Worship and worry cannot exist in the same heart. It's only when, listen carefully, this is very important for your Christ follower. It's only when we stop worshiping do we begin to worry. But I challenge you. The next time you sense worry, the next time you feel anxious, the next time the pressure of the uncertainty of life comes on you, begin to worship. Begin to adore. Rather than talking about all the negative things that can and will and won't, begin to talk to God and acknowledge Him for who He is. As you lift Him up, as you acknowledge His greatness, His glory, His grandeur, His goodness, His faithfulness, all of a sudden what you feel is the weight and burden of anxiety and worry fall off of you. Because no matter what you're facing, it is tiny and minuscule in the face of who God is. Paul says, rather than waiting and worrying, move to thinking and thanking. Paul doesn't say ignore your worry or pretend like, I don't see it, I don't see it, I don't see it. He's not saying live in a spiritual state of denial. What he's saying is rather than sitting there and biting your fingernails and talking and talking, as if talking is going to help anything, think about who God is and thank God. And you're thinking, thank God for what? It was the 19th century theologian, pastor, speaker, orator, uh, expositor, Charles Spurgeon, who talked about this exact subject matter. And he said, let's just say, for example, you have an outstanding bill. There's a debt you owe. Maybe you're trying to buy a car, pay rent. You've got loans to money. Let's say you're in the face of this debt, and you're under the pressure of this debt, and you're worrying, and you're anxious, and you're uncertain, and you're fearful because of what this debt might do. Let's say someone comes along and says, a trusted friend, not just random, or a trusted friend, says, listen, I will pay that, that debt for you. I will take care of it. Don't worry. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Look, l let me. I want to bless you. I will pay your debt. What, what's the next thing you say in that sequence? Don't be shy. It's not a trick question. You say, thank you. What, are you, what are you. what are you saying thank you for? Nothing's happened yet. The debt still exists. It hasn't been paid. You're still in trouble. But because of your confidence in the one who said it, you give thanks before it even happens because you know it will happen in the same way because God is good and God is faithful and God never lets us down. We can say thanks in advance knowing that if he said it, he will fulfill it. So when we pray, we don't pray random half-hearted prayers. We pray with confidence because we know who God is. We know what God has done. And we know that God cares for what worry and anxiety do to us. We can give thanks. Now what happens when we, rather than worrying, we actually turn to prayer and thanksgiving? Well, verse 7. And the peace of God which transcends. Transcend means goes above, goes beyond. All understanding. So what he's saying is there's this, 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 this peace of God, from God, that goes above all. Like We can't fully understand it. We can't fully make sense of it. We, can't, we, kind of, we experience it, but we can't fully explain it. This, this inexplicable peace, we're told. What are we told? Well, first thing, and. Well, what, so if, again, this is rewind. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, hey, if you're a Jesus follower, don't be anxious. Thanks, Paul. Give me something else. Oh, okay. So here's what you do when you're struggling with anxiety. Turn to God 
in prayer, emotive supplication. Bring your feelings before God. Be raw and be real. And as you pray, present your requests and think hard about what you really want. And as you ask, already give thanks as an act of faith because you know that if God says he will, it's already done. And in doing that, there is this and, not just a sequence, not the next step, but actually the effect. When we do that, there's an effect. When we pray and give thanks, when we choose to trust God's word, when we put our confidence in God for the future, here's what happens. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is really important. So where does anxiety attack? It attacks us in our hearts, our feelings, right? The seat of our emotions. We feel things. We, we get upset. We get nervous. We get worried. We, we, we become impatient. We become, we become bitter. We become angry. We become all these things. But also attacks our mind because our mind is just running all the time. Oh, my gosh. I have to fix that, solve that, get that, win that, tell that, don't do that. Like it just it's consumes us. And what Paul is saying is that when we come before God in prayer with thanksgiving, this, this peace that's it's inexplicable, but it's totally experiential. We'll guard our hearts and minds. And the image there is like border control. Yesterday, I, I came back. I was in the States. I flew back in Dublin yesterday. And when I got off the plane, I came to the border control thing. And I went to go through the electric passport thing. You know that thing? You scan your passport, which is really cool. Except I don't look like anything like I am now, like I was. Wider and, you know, anyway, COVID's been tough. And so... Um, so I'm on a machine, I'm scanning, and the thing goes, eh, eh, and I'm like putting again, eh, eh, I'm the same person, come on, somebody. And so I'm getting frustrated and go in the queue, and I get to the queue, and I'm like, oh, man, come on, you know. And there's like 10 million Americans in the queue, and I'm like, oh, come on, man. Eventually, my time comes, I slap the passport, the guy looks at it, he scans it, looks at it again, and says, welcome home. What's the point? The point is, you just don't get into countries without being scrutinized. The purpose of border control is to protect the interests and safety of the citizens living in that country. Listen, when we pray and when we give thanks, the peace of God acts like a border control. Saying, worry about this? Oh, you don't belong here. Concern about, oh, you don't belong here. Oh, you're fearless, you don't belong. It, it, it kind of bats down all the attempts for fear to consume our lives. God's peace is not like the world. We think of peace as the absence of conflict. Peace time. Oh, peace. It's peaceful. Oh, the kids are in bed. It's so peaceful. Our definition of, of peace is the absence of conflict. A biblical definition of peace does not mean nothing bad is happening, or there's no wars raging, or there's no battles. God's peace is actually the presence of His control in our lives when we have no control over our lives. And there's two parts to God's peace. There's peace with God, and there's the peace of God, and we need both. How do we get peace with God? Well, when we acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior, and again, maybe you're a skeptic, not a Jesus follower, and you're wondering, hey, what is this all about? This is exactly what it's about. When you recognize that Jesus Christ came to the earth because he loves you, and he wants to redeem you and restore you. And there's a plan and purpose for you. And all this frustrations of your life, all the unhealthy, crazy cycles, the toxicity, the selfishness, the sinfulness in your life. What Jesus came to do was to die on a cross so all of our junk is on him and all of his goodness can be given to us. When we acknowledge, when we accept, when we recognize Jesus, Savior, we're told we have peace with God. We can be in relationship with him. We, we, we can know him. We can walk with him. In accepting God's acceptance, we can be accepted. We can belong. We have a place at God's table. We can belong to the family of God. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer far from God. God is not out to get us. God wants to be with us. And my prayer is that every single one of us in this room and online would experience peace with God. But the second type of peace is the peace of God. And listen carefully because I'm going to slap you right now metaphorically, lovingly, as your pastor. Too many of us who call ourselves Jesus followers, we, 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 we hide behind this. I prayed a prayer once. I was raised a Christian. I go to church. Oh yes, absolutely, pastor. I, I, I agree. Jesus is my savior. But listen carefully. The reason why your life is a disaster right now, or at least partially speaking, 
is because you haven't submitted to him as Lord. You recognize and accept him as your savior, but you haven't acknowledged him as your Lord. What does it say in Romans 10, 9? That if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, two things. Jesus is our savior and he is Lord. That's what salvation is. It's those two things working together. Jesus as Lord brings us the peace of God. How so? Because if Jesus is my Lord, he's in charge. If Jesus is Lord, then I, my life is not my own anyway. If Jesus is Lord, then my choice is always, God, what's yours? My choice is not A or B, it's obedience. God, what do you want from me? Life is so much simpler when Jesus is Lord because your prayer is, God, what is your will for me in this scenario? And even though I don't understand, and even though I can't see, and even though I don't know, rather than worrying and being anxious, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to live in that trust. And I can tell you one thing. From the moment I gave my life to Jesus over 20 years ago to this moment right now, every single day, this has been my prayer. Lord, what is your will for me today? And I can't say I've always got it right because I have not. <laughs> I wish. But in the big ways and in the most important things I have. And here's the point. God has never let me down. When we experience peace with God, and when we experience the peace of God, we're told this peace will guard our hearts. Peace is not just the flip side of anxiety. Peace is the opposite of anxiety. Peace is the means to be free from anxiety. Peace is the antidote. Peace is the answer. What we need is not medication. We need peace. What we need is not more stuff, we need peace. Because more stuff means more anxiety, because you have more to lose. What we need is solution to, to the world's anxiety is peace with God. When we have peace, true peace, this peace from God that transcends all understanding, we don't need anxiety. And my prayer for you as I'm going to close this message is that you would have that peace. That you would experience that peace. That peace wouldn't just be something you, you desire, will for, pray for. That peace will be something you experience every day in your life. Let me give you three practical takeaways then. Number one, three takeaways. Here's the first. Oh, I should go back to the Willie Murphy story. This is funny. So I talked about, oh, no, that's nice. There you go. Thank you. So I talked about at the beginning, that woman who uh, <laughs> had the anxiety of the burger breaking in. Just in contrast, here's a very funny story. A couple of years ago, this 82-year-old woman who lives in Rochester, New York, who is a former weightlifting champion, one night, a burglar broke into her house. And you think, okay, I mean, every granny's worst nightmare, a break-in, a burglary in New York. Except in this instance, she was ready. She'd been training her whole life for this moment. When the burglar, it's a true story, you can fact check it. When the burglar broke in, she began to attack him with washing up liquid to the eyes. Then, once he had lost his ability to see, she began to beat him with a broom, and eventually she broke a kitchen table over his back. He left with surgery. She left with a selfie. Again, two women, same thing like, what was the difference? She was ready. How could we be ready? Three takeaways. Number one, first thing is this. Boom. First takeaway is think. Change your focus from what isn't to what can be. See, when we trust in God, we pray, we have the ability to trust God for what is not but can be because when God is in the equation, anything's possible. Rather than thinking about how bad things will be, think about how good things will be. Rather than think about all the reasons why it'll go wrong, maybe think about what God can do in you and through you and for you and what can go right. So the first thing is change your thinking. Number two, turn. Turn. Turn to God not only in the process but also for the outcome. Don't just accept him as Savior, but trust him as your Lord. That his life, your life is in his hands. And that he has you. Number three, talk. If you haven't already joined the group, understand, we don't want to be a church service. We want to be a family. And if you don't have people that you can be real with, who you can belong to, a family, I want to encourage you, go to the website, click on groups, find a group, and find a family. Find some people that you can be real with. Because ultimately, guys, if all our church is, is this a Sunday service, we're missing out on what God wants for us. And services don't solve anxiety. But living out our faith together in community 
reminding each other, encouraging each other. I believe God can use that powerfully to break us free from the power of anxiety. Last story, and then I'm going to pray. This is really very, very real for me because about two months ago, we got word that we're losing our house. We rent, like most of you, and our landlord, something happened in his life, and he needed to come home. So we were given notice that we had to leave. Uh, the problem is we can't find anywhere to move into, and the clock is ticking down. And it's a pretty crazy time because we just launched a church. It's my son's second birthday party day. My oldest boy's doing his junior start next month. So a lot of important things happening. And the reason why I'm telling you the story right now is because right now there is no miracle. Right now there is no happy ending. Right now we're living in the anxiety of where will we live next month? Will our kids have to change school? How will our rhythm and routine look like? We're packing boxes to go somewhere. We don't know where it is right now. We have nothing. We've nowhere to go. Nothing's opened up for us. We're stuck. And every day, a thousand times a day, anxiety attacks. Boom, 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 Fear, worry, concern, what if, what not. If it all goes wrong, if you thumb on the street, knock on your front door, hello, it's your pastor and our 10 kids. Good thing I have your address. There's no miracle right now, but I want to mark this moment and say there will be. Because God has never let us down. <clears throat> so what do we do in the face of anxiety? Every time I feel that, that anxiety kind of creeping up and almost trying to suffocate me, I slap its dirty hands off. I say, God, I know your faithfulness. I know your goodness. Father, I bring before you these feelings of inadequacy, uncertainty, fear, lack, worry, concern, all these things. What will it do to our kids? What will our future? I bring all these concerns and I give thanks. I give thanks. I give thanks for what is not now, but certainly will be then, because you are good. There's no quick fix. But the Apostle Paul would say, hey, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, whether it's a job, a relationship, or finding a house, present your request to God. Pray. And give thanks. As you do that, the effect will be God's peace. As you accept, as you accept Him as Savior and Lord, God's peace will be on you, in you and will work through you. It will provide, it will protect, and it will act as a present help in time of need so that there is hope and there is help from heaven. I invite you to stand. I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray specifically for this peace to be on your life. Maybe you're going through something right now. I'm sure you are like we all are. But I want to, I want to, I want to close this message, not just praying a prayer, but I want to pray specifically for the peace of God transcends all understanding to be in and over your life. I'm going to ask the band, can we sing that song we give thanks again? Rather than, rather than do their song so you guys can get ready for that. And, I, and then the band will lead us in this song, we give thanks. And let it be like a, a proclamation that whatever you're facing, illness, unemployment, homelessness, <laughs> whether it's a relationship crisis, maybe you're out of work, I, I don't know what it is, whatever you're facing, as we pray, let's give thanks to God because we know as we put our confidence in Him, He is our hope, He is our help, and He will never let us.